You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Thank you, Tom. Know what we're going to be doing at our house this afternoon. We're going to be getting the toy harmonica out. So, thank you, Tom. Want to, want to babysit this afternoon? <laughs> if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're doing that. Let me just summarize the message from last week in a sentence. Maybe two. The first is this, that only the Bible has the right to speak for God. Only the Bible has the right to speak for God. Second would be a little bit longer. The principle of sola scriptura, or scripture alone, is the foundation upon which the very, which the entirety of our Christian faith is built. And that includes our understanding of the gospel itself. The principle of sola scriptura is the foundation of which, on which the entirety of our Christian faith is built. Our Christian faith is not built on experience. Experiences are good. It's not the foundation. Foundation is scripture. Our understanding of the gospel doesn't come from how we experience the gospel. It comes from this text. Because remember, only the Bible has the right to speak for God. This morning, then, we turn our attention to grace. Grace alone, or what the Reformers refer to as sola gratia. If you would, stand with me as we honor the reading of Scripture together. Let's start in in chapter 2, and we'll read through verse 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved 
through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is the is the only book that has the right to speak for you. Lord, and we pray that as we dig into it this morning, Lord, we pray that your spirit would, would help us to, to see its, its beauty, its truth. That our eyes might be open and, and hearts receptive, that we might hear these things, these truths proclaimed from your word. Lord, we ask that that these is, is hearers would look past inadequacy, would be able to, to look past misplaced words, and that your spirit would allow us to grasp the truth of scripture proclaimed here today. Lord, we pray that you would use it. Make the gospel clear. Glorify Jesus. In these things we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We said that Scripture is the foundation on which our entire faith rests. In Scripture, we see this in Ephesians 2, speaking of the, the church or the household of God, Paul says in verse 20 that it was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. There's no question that Paul has Scripture in mind here because the very next verse reads this, still speaking of Jesus, in whom Jesus, the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. The metaphor is remarkably clear. The foundation that is laid by the apostles and the prophets is Scripture, and the Scriptures are all about Jesus. He makes everything straight. He makes everything hold together. If one is to learn the importance of Jesus, where else can they look besides the Scriptures? They always go back to the foundation, but think about it this way. The text here connects the church to the scriptures in an important way. The church is built on that foundation. We do not build apart from it, but we always lay on that foundation that has already been built. We don't go on building more foundation. That was much of the point last time. But we also recognize that the solas of the Reformation are very much connected with one another. Certainly we see that in the text we just mentioned in Ephesians 2. It speaks of the centrality of Christ in Scripture, Christ alone. There is one cornerstone, not two. For instance, the foundation of grace alone, or sola gratia, 
is Scripture alone. We said last time that sola scriptura, Scripture alone, was a moral imperative or something we we obey when confronted with our sin or how we ought to live in the Scriptures. There's a, a disposition of our heart. Is your heart bent toward obedience and trusting and relying on God speaking through his word? Or is it a a playbook in which you can choose what play is going to work right for this occasion and that occasion? Or is God working through it, speaking these words? I bring this up at the onset to remind us that we talked about last time, but also point to the fact that the theme of Scripture is grace alone. It's the heart of the Christian faith. I remember one Sunday, I had mentioned that we were saved by grace alone. And after the service on the way out, somebody, none of you, I know that for a fact, none of you, said that they needed to correct me a little bit. Now, in the handshaking line at the end of the service, there's not a lot of time for theological conversation and debate. But this person said, you said we're saved by grace, when in reality we're saved by our faith. I had only time to share one line with the person, and I said, yes, it is through faith, but it is by God's grace. And that satisfied I know that this person believed that we're saved by God's grace. I know that they weren't denying that. But since I didn't mention faith in my sermon, apparently I don't remember, they noticed that there seemed to be something missing. And they would be right. The grace of God towards sinners does include faith. Now my hunch is what the person was getting at by bringing this up was that grace on its own is devoid of works. And faith seems to come in and kind of correct that a little bit. Faith seems to be the the work side of the grace equation. After all, faith without works is dead, meaning that faith without works isn't really faith at all. Here's my point, and that is that the foundation of our Christian faith is Scripture. The understanding of grace is not only found in Scripture, but it's the theme of Scripture, meaning that salvation rests solely in the grace of God, alone. From start to finish, we see that theme. Salvation is by grace. It's not by grace, but end. It's not by merit on our account. There's no works. Salvation isn't something that is worked for. Faith cannot be the prerequisite for grace. Does that make sense? I really hope so. And I think even after next week, we're going to talk about faith alone. It's going to make more sense. But I think grace is such a difficult subject for us that we fall into the trap and we think we're saved by grace And then we start thinking about what exactly that means. And then we do that. Yes, we're saved by grace, but. 
thing. Are we saved by grace? Yes? There's, there's got to be something more. There's, there's got to be works here somewhere. I mean, how does faith fit in? And automatically we're associating faith with works. What the reformers rediscovered that had already been taught in the early church, Augustine and others, like a thousand years before this, was that we're saved by grace alone, apart from works. There is no, yes, we are saved by grace, but that denies grace. Douglas Van Dorn said that this, this problem of, yes, we're saved by grace, but this problem is actually even more of a problem today than it was in the time of the Reformers. And he gives a very telling illustration. He was writing in October of 2017. If you remember what happened in October of 2017, there was an extreme act of terrorism. 58 dead, 850 people injured in Las Vegas at a concert when somebody went to a hotel window and started shooting. Van, Tor Van Dorn tells of, of a person that he knew. He said he called her a, a sweet person who claimed to be a Christian who really struggled after this shooting. And he quotes her saying this, all mass shootings and terror attacks are terrible. But this seemed to me to be especially hard, maybe because I'm a mom. Maybe it's because I knew people at that concert. For whatever reason, today I could not stop crying. I don't know what answers to guns or mental states of mind would have prevented this, nor do I want to talk about it yet. I don't know why this evil person did what he did, but I still have to believe that people are 99% good and we can't let fear and evil win. <clears throat> Van Dorn's theory was that the more violent a society becomes, the more strongly those in them, in the society, will of their own free will adopt a form of Pelagianism, a basic worldview of human nature. Now, Pelagius was a contemporary of Augustine. So a long time before the Reformation. And he preached, so he preached at the turn of the 5th century, and taught people, taught that people are inherently basically good. Like 99% good, as the story illustrates. How often do we hear things like that? After acts of violence, after somebody does something horrible, that we have to believe that people are basically good. It's just the few people out there with a screw loose that need to be explained by their mental illness or their terrorist indoctrination or whatever the case is. My point is that we tend to footnote grace and say, yes, we're saved by grace, but we're saying in essence that Yes, we're saved by grace, but we need to remember that people are basically good. Or at least good enough to, to merit God's grace toward them some way. We'll talk about faith next time, but 
and how faith fits into all of this. But now just suffice to say that faith is the avenue or the instrument in which God uses to save people or to receive the grace of God. So to say that salvation is by faith alone is very correct in that there's no other way that salvation is appropriated. One cannot be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ alone. At this point, we are saying that the ground of our salvation, right, our salvation that is through faith in Jesus Christ, the foundation of that is only in the grace of God alone toward sinners, apart from any merit. The ground of our salvation then is sola gratia, grace alone. So if we're to understand grace, we also need to understand our tendency, which is to constantly footnote it. And to footnote something, we need to give it a definition. So here's the question. What is grace? Now, the first thing, basic definition of grace, unmerited favor, undeserved favor. But the first thing we need to say here is that for us to grasp this, what grace is, it's not an easy concept. It's an easy definition to give. Grace is unmerited favor. But it isn't an easy concept to grasp. And that's why we're constantly footnoting it and saying things like, yes, we're saved by grace, but... And then we fill in the blank. We say that because grace is a difficult concept. In fact, Kevin Van Hooser says this. He says, grace contradicts every system of religion precisely because God's free mercy cannot be predicted, it cannot be calculated, or it cannot be manipulated. Grace is especially troublesome for control freaks, sinners curved in on themselves, bent in on securing their own experience or their own existence and status. I think we're all control freaks a little bit when it comes to ourselves in securing our own existence. Our own existence and status. This is ingrained in us. This is the, the essence of the American dream in a sense. We gotta be in control if we're gonna make our own destiny. But the fact is, when it comes to grace, we cannot control it. We can't manipulate it. It's outside of our hands. We can do nothing to earn it. If we could, it wouldn't be grace. We can't merit it. We can't do something to deserve it. We can't put ourselves in the right position to get it. We can't give it to ourselves. We can't calculate it. The Bible says it this way in Exodus 33, and again quoted in Romans 9, that God has mercy upon who he has mercy and compassion on who he has compassion. In other words, the sole determiner of grace in all its respects is God and the mercy that he chooses to show. So grace is this. It is chiefly God's goodness in Christ, both proclaimed and granted. God's goodness, 
in Christ, both proclaimed and granted. If it's only proclaimed, it's not grace. It's granted. It's God's undeserved favor towards sinners. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 for the next few moments. Let me just draw your attention back a chapter, though, to to chapter 1. Here's the the foundation for all of what Paul is going to say at the beginning of chapter 2. I want you to notice something in chapter 1. And that is that verses 13 through, or 3 through 14, that's a single sentence in the Greek. Let me just read a little bit of it for you. I'm not going to read it all. But. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's just part of it. Paul would have been an English teacher's nightmare. But as one scholar rightly said about these verses, we shouldn't worry about that because they're not really meant to be diagrammed anyway. They're meant to be swum in, to swim in them. It's not dry theology. This is great theology. Really, it's it's what we talked about last time, that an informed mind by Scripture leads to an inflamed heart, a disposition that totally changes toward God. And that's what we're seeing here in Paul. An inflamed heart that has been informed by Scripture. And as we turn to the second chapter, I want, I want us to take this and look at it in, in three different movements. I hesitate to call them points because they flow through the text, they build. We're, we're moving through Paul's thought here. Here are the, the movements. The gravity of our condition, or as Packer, J.I. Packer calls it, the sinfulness of our sin. The reality of judgment and the grandeur of grace. In other words, if we're to understand grace alone in this text, we need to start with why we need it. And that's right exactly where Paul starts this. The gravity of our own condition. So the question then is, is what is our condition? Packer gives us a hint when he talks about the sinfulness of sin. Here's the thing with sin. Sin is so common in the human race that it's tolerated. At least most sins are. Most sins, we never give a second thought. If we had time, we would talk about just the the clear commands in Scripture. Commandment three, for instance, not taking the, the Lord's name in vain. And we think as long as we say, and this is funny because it's illustrated in, in text message lingo so well, we think as long as we don't say OMG, we got that command covered. I've seen people actually write OM gosh, just so that others will know that they're not taking the Lord's name in vain. But that really touches the surface of the command. 
It's not near that simplistic. In fact, if, if one goes to the Westminster Larger Catechism and checks out questions 112 and 113, and, ask, and they ask the question, what is required in the third command? And then what is forbidden in the third command? It'll blow your mind on how vast that command actually is. It's interesting. My point is that we don't give much thought to sin since we all sin and it's so common in the human race. But we ought to remember that we sin because we are sinners. We're born in sin. Sin is inescapable. That's not an excuse. That's a reality. So how bad is it? I mean, that's a question that must be asked. We're all sinners. Sin is supposed to be taken seriously. God hates sin. How bad is the situation that we're in? Is it as Plagius said that most people, and most people probably believe today, that, that people are basically good? Or is it as the, the semi-Plagians say, that, well, people are sick. Sin has corrupted our being. It's tainted us. We'll say this. I mean, this is the prominent view amongst Christians today. Sin has affected us. Sin has tainted us. It has corrupted us. We're tainted by sin. It's a reality. It has profound effect on individuals, but there's still some good in there. There has to be. There has to be some good in us because, after all, we have to be able to come to faith. We have to be able to choose right. We have to be able, there has to be good in there. R.C. Sproul used to say that we're all born semi-plagians. We're prone to think that there's good in us. But is this the picture the Bible paints? Look at the first words of Ephesians 2. Speaking to believers, he said, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. No life. The, the Greek word there is necros. We get words like necrosis from that. Death of cells. Necropathy, the, the examination of a dead body. Necropolis, a cemetery. Necrophilia, a fetish or a strange fascination with, with dead things. Necromancy, the practice of, of communicating with dead spirits. Something that is very forbidden in Scripture. Words that some of which you recognize for sure. Now for the semi-Pelagian, they look at this word dead here and see it like a miracle max in The Princess Bride. Sees dead when given the corpse of the man in black. What was his line? He's not dead, he's just mostly dead. And if he's mostly dead, that means he's a little bit alive. So... Paul here then in essence is saying that one is slightly alive in the sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, etc. That, that doesn't work, does it? We're thinking that's, that's kind of a crazy interpretation to say dead here actually means slightly alive. 
It's really absurd to think that, but there's many that do. It's greatly confused, but just the same, let me show you how they get that. Paul says that you were dead in your sins in which you once walked. Do you see that word, walked? Dead and walked. Do dead people walk? Well, zombies do, but that's not normal. That's something else, kind of. The text says that these who are dead have followed the prince of the power of the air. Do dead people follow anything? It says that they are disobedient. I mean, all of these words, walk, follow, disobedience, in the text seem to indicate that people are in fact live. So what Paul is saying is that in the same person, there is death and there is life. So this is where they get this. So grace then, for them, the, the semi-Pelagian, is like putting gas in a tank. Or better yet, it's like a blood transfusion. It's adding more life to the body that is already alive to make them more alive. It's an infusion of life. I would suggest that as the reformers did, that grace isn't an infusion of life into a slightly alive body, but it's a resurrection of somebody who is spiritually dead. All the way dead. Making them all the way alive. That's the picture here. So let's back up for a minute and look at what spiritually dead is. Paul explains that statement. There's no... I don't think there's any discrepancy. It's very clear. So you ask, though, at the onset here, how do you handle the words following and disobedience and walk? Jonathan Edwards said it this way, and I think he did a great job. He said that what is meant here is that the person is, is dead toward God, to everything about God, he is dead, but to the things of the world and the flesh and the devil, he is alive. Spiritually dead, but alive to sin and rebellion against God. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul says that these were dead in their sins, and it's in those sins and those trespasses that they walked. So what does walking in sin and rebellion look like? It looks like this, that the sinner is enslaved or trapped by the same things that are destroying them. What is walking in sin and rebellion look like here? To be dead in your sin? It means that the sinner is trapped. They're enslaved by the same things that are destroying them. That's not a good place to be, is it, folks? Sometimes we think of temptations that come upon us in terms of three different sources, the world, the devil, and the flesh. And these categories of, of or these are the categories of sinful behavior that Paul is speaking about in these verses. But in these verses, notice it isn't only temptation that he's talking about. It's captivity by these forces. And this person, this dead person, then only operates within their sphere of influence or captivity. 
They're in this cage. They're enslaved. Just notice here briefly how Paul mentions each of these. You were dead in sin in which you once walked following the course of the world. The person in question here isn't choosing the world because they are giving in to its temptation. They're dead in sin walking that way. And that's what it means to be spiritually dead, is is walking in that sin and that rebellion in the course of the, the way of the world, not the way of God. But not only the world, the text goes on to say that this person is following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The clear picture here is that this person is in captivity to the wiles of the devil. Just notice the phrase, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The fact is Christians and non-Christians alike see people around us who fall into that category. We see people all the time who are disobedient by whatever standard one uses. That standard might even be ourselves. So there are people who are worse than we are. We might see ourselves as pretty obedient. And somebody else is more disobedient than we are. It's easy to recognize disobedience in somebody else. But notice what Paul is telling the Ephesians here. Paul is saying to the Ephesians, that was actually once you. You were that person, and the devil was your father. John 8, 44 says much the same thing. Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the person who is dead in sin is walking in accordance with the desires of the devil who is at work in those who are disobedient. That's rough, isn't it? But not only this, the text clearly says that to be dead in sin is to be held in captivity to one's own flesh. The world, the devil, big systems, worlds, the devil, another outside force is influencing us. But not only that, we're in captivity to ourself. And ourself is actually what is destroying us. Verse three, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born in sin. We're in a state of sin. We're so corrupted I mean, this is, this is really a, a problem with some of the age of accountability type way of talking where people believe that, that someone's slate is morally clean until they reach a certain age. The fact is, even before one hits a, a magic age, their nature is evident. Even before, even before they know what they're doing, their nature is evident, just as Jesus said in John 8 whether it's, it's recognizable or we're following our own desires and these desires are, are to lie because we're following, following our father of, of lies, our flesh is corrupt, radically corrupt. 
That's how R.C. Sproul used to put it. We're so radically corrupt that every aspect of our being is tainted by sin so that in our nature, it is, it's natural to, to sin and lie. In fact, that's what our, our passions and our desires want. We see that as a viable option in many instances. Sin is so inherent in who we are since Adam through his disobedience brought sin, a sin curse on the entire human race. Therefore, our flesh is full of sinful desires by nature. That's what the text says. By nature, we carry out the desires of the body and the mind. The point here is that we're so, is that we're to take that word dead here very seriously. It isn't a miracle max kind of dead. It's spiritual dead. No life whatsoever. Notice something else here. And this leads to our next, next movement. And that is, the picture here is someone who is dead. There's no life in them. They're incapable of life on their own. And Paul is very clear that the end for these individuals is the same. And that is that they are a child of wrath, just like every other person. This is the, the second movement in the text, the reality of judgment. You were dead in your sins. You were enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh. And the only outcome is the wrath of God. Why? One might object and say, well, it sounds like you're saying, pastor, that one is born in a state of sin. Therefore, they continue in sin, following their own nature. And if that's the case, then how can they be held responsible? Well, there are countless texts in the Bible that show us that we bear responsibility for our own actions. But let's just look at the one before us. Notice the language in verse 2. You were dead in the sins in which you once walked. So the question there, who committed the sin? You did. You, you walked in them. Who lived that way? You did. Who followed the prince of the power of the kingdom of the air? Who followed the devil? You did. And speaking of the flesh in verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and carried out the desires of our body and mind. Who, who is responsible? It's your passion and you're following it. We carried out the desires and the passions. So we're responsible. And the Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. So the question then is, what is God's wrath? If, if, if somebody is a child of, of wrath, what does that mean? One can say that it's his kindled anger against sin. J.I. Packer says it this way. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irrational, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. Instead, it's a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. The fact is, we're all sinners, and therefore we all deserve God's wrath. His right 
and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. One thing I like about Packer's statement here is that the sins and the evil that we commit, those things are objective. It's not a, a judgment call. In so many other religions, salvation is all about balancing scales in the end. Is your good, is your good deeds good enough to outweigh your bad deeds? That's a judgment call. The fact is, God is so clear with his creatures as to what sin is that he has written it on his hearts of his creatures and put it in his law. Sin is objective. Sin or it's not. But notice something about the law. The law is not the gospel. The law shows us our need for the gospel. Think about the law like this. Have you ever seen those videos of somebody standing on rocks by a beach, the waves are are coming in behind them, and they're taking pictures or whatever. They're not even thinking about what's going on behind them. They just think they're safe. They go on on the rocks. They get close to the edge. They're living their own lives. They captain their own ship. They're making their own decisions. They're only thinking about their desires. They have no idea of the grave situation that they're in. And then out of nowhere, a wave comes and wipes them out. And we laugh. It is kind of funny. You can laugh. Um. But the purpose of the law is like this. It's to bring an awareness of sin. It's to show us what God demands of us and how we cannot live up to that standard. It shows us that we're just living our lives, we're not even thinking about what sin is. And all of a sudden, in the law, it's made so radically clear that there is, there is sin and the consequences of that sin is death. And if we continue on the same trajectory that we will going, we will face the wrath of God. That's the purpose of the law. The author of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 10. Oh, how terrible it would be to fall into the hands of a living God. And it is the law that brings us an awareness of that reality that we are sinners under the wrath of God. And it should hit you like a tidal wave. Now, think of the movement so far in the text. Dead in sin and wrath is certain. God's judgment is certain. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. And we know that because of our sin, we're going to be found wanting at judgment. So as James Boyce says, humanly speaking, there is nothing that can be done at this point. The sinner cannot save himself. Even a redeemed person who has seen the truth of salvation in the gospel cannot save another sinner. Parents cannot save their children. We're all sinners and we bear the weight of that sin. You know, look at my own kids. And they're disobedient or they lie when they know what's right and they choose the wrong thing. We, we try to teach them what's right. We try to curb bad behavior. But if we're looking at this rightly, we also know 
that even if we curb that bad behavior, that bad behavior is doing nothing but storing up wrath. And one of the most difficult things as parents is to know that we can't save our kids. It can't be done. And this is where we get to the final movement in our text this morning, and that is the grandeur of grace. Let grace be grace. There's no, yes, we're saved by grace, but there's nothing that can be done here. Notice in the next verses, you walk this way, you followed. The responsibility lies in the individual for following their sinful desires, the ways of the world, the wiles of the devil. The text is as absolutely clear. The way one lives is evidence of their spiritual deadness. And all of a sudden, in the text, the language radically changes. From you continue to give evidence of your spiritual deadness, there's no, or saved by grace, but there's you are spiritually dead, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love for which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. There's no slightly a dead person here putting gas in a gas tank. There's no blood transfusion making the slightly alive person more alive. There's only a, a dead person waiting under the wrath of God and the love of God coming like a tidal wave, resurrecting them. So Paul is talking to the Ephesian Christians. He's saying, this is what's happened to you. You were once dead, and in that you gave evidence to being dead by your sinful lifestyle, by the way you continue to live. But even when you were dead, even when you were living that way, even when you were killing yourself because you were enslaved to these things, your destruction was sure, and you were making it more sure because you are constantly giving evidence of your deadness. Even when you did that, God made you alive. Not because of anything you did, for you could do nothing. You were dead. It was God that made you alive. There's no miracle max theology not people who are mostly dead, no blood transfusions, no gas in a tank, only God's mercy towards sinners. That he takes what is dead and makes them alive. We saw this in, in Romans 9. We've already mentioned it. But God is not obligated to show mercy. Grace is God's unmerited favor, undeserved favor, it isn't earned, and God is not obligated to give it. And while you were still in your sins, that's the idea. While you were dead, when everything about us was hostile toward God, in that moment, he, in his grace, in his mercy, made us alive. That's grace. Look at verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Then go down to verse 8. We see this again. Paul makes it even more clear. By grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. I mean, so on and on, he's, re- he's saying this. Grace is grace. It's not a result of works. It's a, it's a gift. It has to be a gift because if it wasn't, you would boast. There's no boasting here. Salvation is sola gratia. It's by grace alone. No works, not of your own doing, none whatsoever. Not in the slightest. So here's the implication for us. First of all, if you're saved this morning, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord, you know that it's not of your own doing. It's solely because God had mercy on you. The grace of God. There's no footnote. That means that God did that, that we are God's workmanship. He's working us. He's creating us in Christ Jesus to display his glory through the works that we do. I think when we start to contemplate the reality of our situation before Christ, our past deadness, how dead we were, how evident, how that is evidenced in our former life. Some of us came to faith young. Think of where we would be without Christ. We start contemplating that and we start contemplating the the mercy of him on us. That is a tremendous motivation through the Spirit's power to live a life that is pleasing to him. Because when we were dead in our sins, get this, we couldn't. You were enslaved. You were enslaved to the world, the devil, the flesh. You couldn't live a life that was pleasing to God. But God made you alive. Now you're free to live a life that is pleasing to God. A life that is only made possible sola gratia. You're not a slave to the world. You're not a slave to the devil. You're not a slave to your flesh. You're free. You're alive. You're not dead. And the implication here then is live like it. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.